If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing in our series on the Ten Commandments, and they are found in Exodus 20. And when you found Exodus 20 in your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Each Sunday, I'm going to be reading all ten of the commandments, and then we'll focus just on one today. This is the Word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Every week when we've finished reading the Ten Commandments, we've been uh, taking time to do a little catechism. uh, Just to help you, that catechesis is a word for teaching. And it's just a tool that can be used to help teach about the commandments. And so I've been sharing with you questions 6 through 16 from the New City Catechism. And the questions go like this. How can we glorify God? And I'd like you to answer out loud with the answer on the screen. By loving him and by obeying his commands and law. And what does the law of God require? Question 7. <laughs> that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the part where I've taken out two of the commandments. Okay, so we've already covered commandments one and two, and so they're blanks. So we're trying to learn these commandments together. So you're going to have to remember the first two. So what is the law of God as stated? Oh, don't help them, Justin. What is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? One, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Okay, those are the first two. 
Now today, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Number four is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. And you shall not covet. All right, that's the, that's the one we're working on. I really, I know we're covering 10 questions, but there's only one question that I'd like to end our series and you being able to answer. That's question eight. What are the 10 commandments? Okay, now, what does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? These help explain what is required, okay? First, that we know God as the only true God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry. And third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence. What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath day, we spend time in worship of God. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother. What does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate our neighbor. Seventh, that we live purely and faithfully. And eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else. And what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive. And tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone. Good. Now, can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall... No human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. That doesn't mean like the fall as opposed to the spring. Okay, that's the fall of Adam and Eve. All right. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt and unable to keep God's law. Now, since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. Amen. That is why the law was given, is that we can know the nature of God. The the commandments, they reflect the character of God. And then we understand our sinfulness and our inability to keep the commands, and thus we need a Savior. They point us to Jesus Christ. Thank you for sharing this moment with me. If you'd like to find the New City Catechism, it's in the Elder Book Nook. Uh, Now, each Sunday, as we've considered the Ten Commandments, we've also been considering one big picture question. Okay, we're focusing on one commandment, but also one bigger picture question about either the Ten Commandments specifically or the law of God more generally. The first Sunday we studied the Ten Commandments, we asked, why should we study them? We gave four reasons that they are foundational, to biblical ethics, central to Christian discipleship. They are neglected in our day, and they reflect the character of God. We should study them for those four reasons. And then two Sundays ago, when we studied the second commandment, we looked at four considerations about God himself being the God who spoke these words, as it says in Exodus 20 and verse 1. And we said that because God spoke them, they are unique, they are complete, They are permanent, and again, they are a reflection of his character, that we may know the holy nature of God. We can learn something about God by learning about these Ten Commandments. Now, of course, last week, if you were here, you know we took a a break from the series, and we had the 
ordination of two lay elders, David Hahn and Alex Kokolios, but we're back again today in the Ten Commandments, and the third big picture question I want to ask is, what is significant about the pattern of salvation followed by law-giving found in Exodus 20 and verse 2? Okay, Exodus 22 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery, and then he gives the commandments. So the short answer we gave when we started this series is that this pattern of deliverance before law-giving is the gospel pattern. It is the gospel pattern. You see, the Ten Commandments begin with grace. The Ten Commandments begin with God's gracious rescue of the people out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, that one phrase in Exodus 20 and verse 2 concisely summarizes all that has happened in the book of Exodus this far. If you see it in Exodus 20 verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That is what we've studied the last two falls. Deliverance and approaching Sinai. All that God had done for his people. God didn't tell the Israelites, obey these ten commandments And then I'll think about rescuing you if you do a good enough job. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful for that pattern? Because that is the gospel pattern. That is how we are saved. God doesn't say, get right, get yourself cleaned up, and then you can come to me. He rescues us from slavery, delivers us, and then says, live this way. Live a life of holiness. My two biggest goals in this message series would be first, that you realize that in your own strength, you could not possibly keep these commandments. They require so much of us as we learn more about what is intended. Not just that the negative is prohibited, but the positive is commanded and exhorted to us. There's so much involved in these that it would be impossible for any one human to keep them. But the second thing I want you to understand is that there's really good news. Because God knows we can't possibly keep the commandments. So he sent Jesus, the Savior, to obey on our behalf. God's gracious rescue of sinners comes before his demands of holiness. Romans 5 verse 8 says God demonstrates. He shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This relationship that we're discovering today between the giving of the law and the grace of God in Exodus sets the pattern for the purpose of the law in our lives as Christians today. The law of God teaches the people of God how to live. To make another comparison, as one writer has put it, The the liberation, the rescue of Israel from Egypt through the shed blood of a Passover lamb was metaphorical and prophetic of the liberation of humanity from sin through the shed blood of Christ, our Passover. We, like Israel, were slaves. You say, how so? We were slaves of sin. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. 
He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, here it is, enslaved to sin. God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and God rescues his people in the new covenant out of slavery to sin. And then in verse 17 of chapter 6, Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were, here it is again, once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. By the way, that obedience from the heart, spoken of in verse 17, is the promise of the new covenant. It's what makes the new covenant eclipse the old in its greatness and glory. Is God provided that which he demanded. Ezekiel 36 says, I will put a new heart within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my word. The new covenant promises the Holy Spirit in us, causing us to be obedient to his word. Thanks be to God. You were once slaves of sin, but now you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. So the end result of all this is that now that you have been set free from sin, verse 22, and become slaves of God, you see our commitment is just to a different master. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, its goal, its purpose, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God that the end result of our obedience from the heart is life everlasting. We praise his name for that. So brothers and sisters, we have been blood-bought and redeemed by the Lamb to serve a new master, saved by God's grace, brought into a restored relationship with him. You see, not only do the commandments in Exodus come after God's gracious deliverance, but the commandments also assume a relationship between the Redeemer and his people. The commandments assume a relationship. God, again, speaking audibly, says in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord, your God. Do you see the relationship there? I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. I'm your God. You belong to me, and I belong to you. We've already looked at the gracious acts in history that this God had performed for his people when we studied Exodus earlier. We spent the last two falls thinking about how God had rescued his people. But all of that can really be summarized in this self-identification of God at the beginning of this verse. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Do you remember when we were studying God's revelation of his name in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14? This is the most important part of the Ten Commandments. Yahweh. The most important part of the Ten Commandments is the Lord. He says to Exodus in the burning bu- he says to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, I am who I am. He said, say this 
to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God revealed himself by name as the one who would rescue his people. He then proceeded to connect his name to the historicity, the history of how he had interacted with the forefathers of the Hebrew people of Israel. In verse 15 of Exodus 3, he says, God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The special relationship God had made by covenant with Abraham, as well as the promises made to Isaac and Jacob, were all imported onto the name, the revelation of the name Yahweh, the Lord. It's in all capital letters in your English Bibles. This personal, covenantal God says now here at Sinai, I am the Lord your God. It's personal. It's relational. And it's authoritative. Everything that will follow verse 2 assumes a relationship of grace, deliverance, historical promises, redemption, all set forward as the basis upon which these commandments are built. So, in summary today, when we consider this pattern of law-giving followed by deliverance and salvation, we need to remember the first place of God's grace and the relationship that God had with his chosen people as foundational to how the nation of Israel was expected to live. Now, in the time that remains today, I'd like us to turn our attention to verse 7 of Exodus 20, which is the third commandment. And this connects so seamlessly to what we've been studying. We've already spent a good portion of the message today thinking about the divine name, about the name of the Lord and its significance in verse 2. In verse 7, the third commandment states, You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God. You see that again? The Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, before I neglect the latter half of the verse and focus on the first, I want to just ask, doesn't this feel a little ominous, the the warning at the end of the verse? Like, the Lord will not hold him guiltless. For those who take his name in vain, it's like, kids, you know, like when your mom is giving you that look, you know, the look that you just know what she means. She says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I wouldn't do that. You know your mom is not making a suggestion. She's not giving you her good opinion. She's saying whatever it is that you're about to do will have consequences and they will be right. I'm going to make them up. Whatever she says will go. And that's exactly how the Lord promises. He himself, the Lord, will not hold him guiltless. It doesn't say exactly what God will do, but the implication is that the Lord himself will see that the justice and the administration of punishment will ensure that the punishment fits the crime 
in every single case of the misuse of God's name. Now, like much of the moral law, as we will see as we continue to study these Ten Commandments, later portions of the Old Testament Scripture show that in Israel, the civic law would have involved capital punishment for blaspheming. This is serious. Don't underestimate the seriousness of reverencing God's holy name. Now, just briefly, to set everyone's minds at ease today, we are not the nation of Israel, and punishment by death is not prescribed in the New Testament. But it is a reminder that God is holy, and he expects holiness in Christ's church. That's why the punishment in the New Testament for unrepentant, continual breaking of the commandments is church discipline. We, like Israel, are called to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Do you remember Peter's words? In Hebrews, we are told in Hebrews twelve fourteen, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Pursue holiness, for without it, that is holiness, no one will see the Lord. We must be holy. So what then ought we learn to avoid? And what then ought we learn to do as New Testament believers to be obedient to this commandment? So let me share with you three things that commandment three teaches us not to do. Okay, this is the negative prohibition. I want to give credit to Kevin DeYoung for these three categories of what not to do. I found his categories of thinking here very helpful. First, the third commandment requires that we do not attach God's name to that which is false. Do not attach God's name to that which is false. You see, God's name is a reflection of his character, and his character is marked by supreme truth. God is always true. God has never failed to keep a promise. His glory, his majesty, and his reputation are unimpeachable. Therefore, to associate God's name with anything that does not prove to be true would be to blaspheme his holy character. This is true, for example, when we swear a false oath. Perjury is squarely in view in light of the third commandment. If you're asked to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, and then you lie, you've associated God's name with that lie. Now, incidentally, I don't have enough time to give us a full development of all the Bible has to say about oaths. I want to point out that oaths are relatively common in the Old and New Testament. I think of Paul in Romans 9, verse 1. So we don't want to pit Jesus' own words about oath-taking against the whole counsel of God's word. So let me just say in short, I don't believe oath-taking, generally speaking, is forbidden in the Bible. But swearing falsely by God's name or even swearing indirectly by God, which is what Jesus, I believe, was addressing. You think you're getting away by not swearing by God's name, by swearing by God's temple. You're just trying to obscure the fact that you're relying on something. And he says, isn't God greater than the temple? The point is, do not swear falsely. It is clearly 
forbidden. Don't pin God's name to your lie. Okay, subpoint one. Subpoint two, don't pin God's name to your own agenda. Don't pin God's name to your agenda, which may end up proving to be true or false. This would fit in the category of false prophecy. False prophets, they abuse, they misuse the name of God to advance their own agenda. They preach peace when there is no peace, and they promise health or wealth to listeners in exchange for their financial support, all while claiming God's name. And God will not be mocked. Things get a little closer to home when we consider the somewhat more common practice in church life of attaching God's name to our plans. How many of you have heard a pastor say, God has told me we should do this, or God is leading us to do this? And they're using God's name to bring about what may or may not turn out to be true. So we ought to be careful in the use of the divine name. Are we using it to win support for what we ourselves wanted the outcome to be? Let's be cautious about attaching God's name or assuming God's will for things that may or may not end up proving to be true. I know I've been guilty of this in the past. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Read this book. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Read 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. I can declare unequivocally, God has told me to tell you, be holy. It is God's will that we be sanctified. So let us not attach God's name to that which is false, a lie or our own agenda. But then secondly, don't attach God's name to that which is frivolous. Verse 7 could be translated a little more literally. You shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God to nothingness. Don't lift up the name of God to emptiness, to vanity. God's name is not to be associated with things that are insincere, superficial, or empty. His name is weighty. His name is important. Under this frivolous umbrella are things like cursing, coarse talk, religious humor, flippancy, and thoughtlessness in prayer. This is the part of the message which you all knew before you came, where I say to you, yes, this commandment does mean that you should not flippantly use God's name in vain. You knew that before you came to church, if you've grown up in church. Of course. But there are some of you who would go to work or school, and you're around people that if you didn't know the context, or you didn't have uh, the inflection of the way they're saying it, you would think they're pastors, because they use God's name so often. They use Jesus' name often. You would say, boy, they must be a preacher or something like that. They're just using God's name all the time. One time, a friend of mine and I, we were playing basketball together. His name is Chase. Incidentally, he was a um, group wedding. Chase was awesome at basketball. I was just tagging along because they let anybody into the YMCA. And so I was on Chase's team because he was good, and uh, we were doing okay. The other team was doing all right, and this guy on the other team, he kept missing shots. 
And he was cursing God every time he missed a shot. You know what he was saying. And finally, Chase, he was a Christian. He had had enough. He says, dude, it's not God's fault you stink so bad. Like, quit blaming God for your misses, okay? It's a funny way to kind of lighten the mood, but it brings um, a reality. It brings it to the forefront of a person's mind. Sometimes they're not even thinking of what they're saying. And using that approach may be something that could help you where you work or with those whom you are around. Let's, let's bring it to the forefront of your mind. Do you even realize, you know, you don't even claim to be a believer, and you use God's name 35 times throughout the day. This could start a conversation with somebody. There are other frivolous ways that we use God's name. One way is to make jokes about God or things pertaining to God. I would say even a well-timed praise the Lord or thank you, Jesus, maybe is lifting up God's name to emptiness. Is there another way we could release the tension comedically in the room? Another way that we frivolously use God's name is when we don't think while we pray. I know some of you can think of times when you've been uh, in a prayer setting and um, the person is trying to pray and they, they use God or Lord or Father uh, every other word because they're trying to think of what they're going to say next. And it doesn't make the prayer more spiritual to continually repeat God's name. I mean, I don't, I don't come up in a conversation with Adam and say, you know, Adam, how are you doing today? Adam, I heard your, your glasses. Adam, this and that. And, you know, Adam, Adam, Adam. You know, when we pray, let's be thoughtful of using God's name as we pray. But even more uh, specifically, every time we pray as Christians, we are instructed to pray how? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. So let's remember that our prayers ought to be in accord with his will and his character. Don't ask for things that are out of accord with the name of Jesus. And let's not rush through I know I'm guilty of this. Let's not rush through even a mealtime prayer, praying a recited prayer in Jesus' name like it's some sort of hurdle to cross to get to our food. Again, I confess, this has been a convicting sermon for me. When we pray, uh, we ought to pray thoughtfully as we invoke the name of Jesus every time. We pray. My dad was a great example of this. I used to, if I'm honest, uh, Dad, you'll probably listen to this at one point. I, I used to get a little frustrated. We'd sit down at the meal table, and my mom had made some really nice meal, and my mind was on playing outside, getting the food, going to watch TV, whatever. And Dad would take this big, deep breath. And then it was this awkward pause like this. And then he'd pray. And the more mature I've become as a believer, I am so... I'm grateful for that example because I know I don't do that as much as I should. Brothers and sisters, we are approaching the holy and awesome God who sits on the throne of the universe let us be mindful when we pray. So there are, there are more things than just saying OMG when we think of what we're supposed to or not supposed to do. When we think about being obedient to the third command, 
So beyond attaching God's name to what is false or frivolous, the third commandment uh, teaches us not to attach God's name to that which is phony. To that which is phony. To take God's name can also mean to bear God's name. This word to take, do not take the name of the Lord, can mean do not bear God's name. Don't carry God's name with you in a way that doesn't reflect the character and name of God. Don't be hypocritical. Any of you with kids, you know what it's like to have somebody with your name running around out there somewhere and doing something that will reflect on you. They carry your name. As Christians, we are name bearers. Is your life saying something different about God than your lips are? Like, are you willing to call yourself a Christ follower and then go and do something that God expressly forbids? This is the worst way of saying God told me. I was like, God told me I ought to divorce my husband. You know, or God told me I ought to, you know, sleep with this person that I'm not married to. I mean, hello? You know, of course not. God didn't tell you that. This is uh, a way that we can be hypocritical. You may be able to keep yourself from abusing God's name in your speech, but are you guilty of breaking the third commandment by attaching his name to a phony lifestyle? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, quips like this, and this is worth writing down. It hit me. It says, quote, Pretend holiness is merely double wickedness. Wow. Pretend holiness is merely double wickedness. Maybe the only thing worse than slogging through the mud and mire of sin is to be dragging God's name along with you through that mud. Pretend holiness is just double wickedness. So we have the negative command. Most of the commands are given in a negative form. Do not. You shall not, okay? But every time we are given a negative prohibition, there is also, as uh, theologians have rightly understood, a positive duty enjoined. There's something positive that we ought to do. So if we've covered what the commandment teaches us not to do, let's now consider what the third command teaches us to do. I would say, first and foremost, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, this command teaches you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the name of Jesus. This commandment finds its fulfillment in Jesus. During Christ's incarnation, that is the time when he took on human flesh in the form of a baby and lived a perfect life of obedience— and suffered a sacrificial death on the cross for sinners, Jesus declared concerning himself to the Father in John 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Later in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, I made known to them, you hear it? Your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So much did Jesus obey his Father in making the Father's name known to us that God, as we heard in the call to worship this morning, 
has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus is the supreme name now. Just like Yahweh had delivered the people of Israel by the blood of the Passover lamb, he has delivered his people by the blood of his own son, and Jesus is now the name above all names. So, friends, if you are here and you haven't believed in the name of Jesus, do it today. Peter is declaring boldly to the rulers, elders, and scribes, and the high priests in Acts chapter 4 when he says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man whom they had healed, is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And here's the verse. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Exalt the name of Jesus. Believe in your heart that he died and he rose for your sins. That exalts the name of Jesus as Savior. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. No truer words can be used in our lips. Scripture says you will be saved. Romans 10, with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name, the name of the Lord, will be saved. Does that mean that you can just say, Jesus, and you're going to heaven? Is that what we're talking about by calling on the name of the Lord? Of course not. To call on the name of the Lord carries weight, meaning. It carries God's character, Jesus' attributes. To call on his name is to call on his authority, protection, strength, honor, glory, holiness, majesty, reputation, and his saving power. Call on Jesus like that, and you will be saved. But many of you are here today, and you've done that. You've called upon the name of Jesus. So what does obedience to this command look like positively for you? I just have two more points for the Christians, the believers in the room. First, hallow God's name. And secondly, live your baptism. Hallow God's name and live your baptism. Think First, of hallowing the name of God. We find this in the Lord's Prayer. To treat God's name, as the Catechism says, with fear and reverence, is to hallow his name. Calvin, writing on the third commandment in the Institute, says, Whatever our mind conceives of God, whatever our tongue utters, should savor of his excellence, match the loftiness of his sacred name, and serve to glorify his greatness. We should not rashly or perversely abuse his holy word and worshipful mysteries, either for the sake of our own ambition or greed or amusement, but as they bear the dignity of his name imprinted upon them, 
They should ever be honored and prized among us. And finally, we should not defame or detract from his works. As miserable men are inclined to abusively cry out against God, But whatever we recognize as done by him, we should speak of with praise of his wisdom, righteousness, and goodness. Whatever we recognize as a work of God should be spoken of and praised to his wisdom, righteousness, and goodness. When you look outside, And you see the glory of his creation. Praise the wisdom, righteousness, and goodness of God. When you consider the fact that God created us, male and female, in his image, did God do that? Praise his name as that is good and righteous and wise. Did God redeem you from your sin? Praise his name for his goodness, righteousness, and holiness. That is what it means to hallow God's name. Again, Jesus taught by his life and modeled for us in the model prayer to hallow the name of God. But finally, as we close today, one one way that Christians can positively keep the third commandment is to live your baptism What do I mean by that? I want to think, first of all, of the commands to baptize in the Great Commission. I'm going to back it up to verse 18 of Matthew 28, where we note the authority of Jesus. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Pause right there. If you're a parent, one way you exercise your authority is naming. One way that God gave Adam authority and dominion over the earth was to let him name. That's why God alone can reveal his own name. He has the authority. And this scripture says all authority is given to Jesus, and so then he commissions them to do something. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, here it is, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Kevin DeYoung rightly points out that among other things, get this, baptism is a naming ceremony. Baptism is a naming ceremony. As a Christian, when you were baptized, you were marked out publicly by the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Christians violate the third commandment when we, bearing God's name, live as if we did not. Do you not know, Paul says. Not know what? Do you not know, he asks. When you're Going to go on in sin, carrying the name of Jesus right there with you into that place. Do you not know? When you're about to go on in sin, taking the name of Jesus right there with you into the bed with that girl or guy, do you not know? 
when you're about to go on in sin, taking the name of Jesus right there with you as you disobey your proper God-given authority, did you not know? You say, no, it'll be fine, right? Because God is a gracious God, and he will forgive my sins. What shall we say then, Paul writes? Are, are we to continue in sin that the grace of God may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you see the taking on of the name? You were baptized into Christ. So we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's no breaking apart of the dying and the raising to new life. If you've died to sin, you live to Christ. That's what happens when you take on his name. We know that our old self, verse 6, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Do you sense the freedom of the deliverance out of Egypt, out of slavery? Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God And so Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You were baptized into his name. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. Leonardtown Baptist Church, let not sin reign in your body. Why? Do you not know? You've been baptized into the name. And Jesus never fails to bring up from the dead those who are his, who have belonged to him, who have placed their faith in him. If you've been baptized in the name of Jesus, you carry the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. Christian, they were first called Christian at Antioch. They're like Christ. They're little Jesus going around. That's you. So, as a Christian, literally... Everything you do is now labeled and marked by the name of Christ. So, the very best way to be obedient to the third commandment is summarized most clearly in Colossians 3, 17. And I close with this. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for revealing to us your holy and righteous character in the law. But more than that, We thank you for Jesus who revealed to us your name with great power 
and perfect likeness. He is, we are told, the image of you, the invisible God. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world to be obedient to the commands that we could not and to die the death that we all deserved to die as a penalty for sinning against your righteousness and holiness. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We praise the name of Jesus today as we gather. We lift up his holiness and deliverance, his shed blood for us. We thank you, Father. And Lord, now we pray at this time that because of your word, we would all be encouraged, challenged, convicted by your spirit, and led by him to be obedient from our hearts to your word, to live a life of holiness, such that those around us see the difference, the marked difference in our conduct, in our character. They might ask for the reason, for the hope that we have. Thank you, Lord, for this time of worship. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.